Welcome back to Voicecraft. This is a conversation with Thomas Bjorkman, and it continues with our thread of considering just what the hell's going on, what we can do about it, how can we understand this need we have to evolve as a society, and how we can come into right relationship with modulating and moving with that emergence. Thomas is an author and philanthropist, member of the Club of Rome, founder of the Research Institute Perspectiva, and several other social ventures, which in different ways take the relationship between collective evolution and the nature of our inner worlds to be fundamental. This conversation is very rich. I really enjoyed it. I do hope you do too. There's a lot to learn here, I think. And as usual, there are invitations associated with these podcasts, both in this case to be involved in the Voicecraft network and participate in conversations, but also to investigate a not-for-profit social venture that Thomas has co-created at 29k.org, which is an app that looks to connect people into an ecosystem for personal growth. There's a lot of science behind it. It looks like a really interesting, well-intentioned thing with a good team behind it. So worth checking out. Thank you for being here. And if you enjoy these podcasts, then please consider sharing them or leaving a review and perhaps also to consider supporting it on Patreon at patreon.com slash voicecraft. All right. Much love. Here we go. Thomas, it's really good to sit down and open into this conversation with you. You've got the kind of resume behind you that makes this particularly interesting, you know, speak about philanthropy, philosophy, systems thinking, and the particular interests you have in seeking to sort of facilitate big change, but appropriate change in our time is, uh, is really fascinating. And so I'm very much looking forward to, to this discussion with you. I think some key themes are to do with uh, emergence and perhaps, perhaps in particular as well, this fascinating concept that you speak about, um, collective imaginary. And these things I'd love to discuss with you. But mm, among these three books you've authored, The Nordic Secret, The Market Myth, and most recently, The World We Create, how would you congeal that sort of interest together in terms of how you meet the world at the moment? Sort of where are we and what's your view of it? Thank you, Tim. Great to be on your podcast. And thank you for that very deep question and, and mm. not very easy yeah. question. <laughs> not an easy one. Not an easy not one. An easy one. Uh, <laughs> I should first... Um, mentioned that um, the book, The Nordic Secret, that you, mm -hmm. you mentioned, I co-authored that together with Lena Andersen, mm -hmm. uh, my Danish friend and uh, philosopher. And uh, I really want to give her credit for, for the deep work that she put into making that book possible. So uh, yeah, uh, thank you, Lena, for, for, for that. Yeah, beautiful. Um, uh, is there... Um, red thread um, between these three books. Yes, that there, there certainly is. And it is uh, all about trying to zoom out from our everyday perception of the world to see some deeper patterns in, in what is going on. And uh, I know that you have had uh, Jordan Hall on, on your podcast mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Jordan sometimes talks about different levels of this transition 
that some of us believe that, that we are in. And I think just during the last couple of years, uh, uh, there has been a rising consciousness about the fact that we are actually in some sort of deep transition. Uh, Brexit, Trump, and not the least the COVID situation uh, during the last uh, half year has, has made me many of us realize that just going on with incremental change within the present system might not be enough to, uh, well, if I should put it drastically, to, to save our civilization. Mm -hmm. So Jordan is talking about different levels. And I've written about five different levels. And perhaps I could touch very briefly on the four first levels there. The first one is the sort of societal change that is more or less going on every day. It's like the societal change we've had in values during the last 50 years in the, in the West. That has been, in many respects, very drastical and, and substantial when it comes to the place of women in society, how we look at the, um, minorities, how, how we look at both racial minorities, uh, cultural minorities, sexual minorities, and things like that. So in, in many of those respects, even if very much, of course, still remains to be done in those areas, we, we are actually living in a little bit of a different world today than, than we did 30, 40, or, or 50, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but if we look at even a deeper layer, we could say that the level two shift, that, that would be what we uh, went through during the uh, Industrial Revolution, when really all of society's production and the way that we were functioning society really shifted in, in a fundamental way. Mm -hmm. and, and some thinkers are talking about the fact that we are in a fourth industrial revolution. Uh, revolution. So those thinkers would believe that we are at least at a level two shift today. But then if you look even deeper, and I think that the shift that we are uh, in right now is, is even deeper than that and could be a level three shift, which would be of the magnitude of the enlightenment when we really shifted our uh, worldview, the fundamental way of, of looking and perceiving the world and we went from a dogmatic religious worldview into a rationalistic scientific worldview and that worldview has of course been very helpful to uh, humanity uh, that is what has given us uh, everything from modern medicine uh, to um, human rights and and democracy but somehow i think that uh, that worldview has served its purpose, but has more or less now reached uh, its limits. And that we need to not discard science and, and reason, but look at ways of complementing those very powerful ways of looking at the world with uh, other ways of looking at the world. And we might come back to that a little bit later. And then some thinkers think are talking about an even deeper shift uh, going back to uh, the shift that happened during the axial age and that uh, John Verveke so well has described in his series, uh, The Meaning Crisis. And that was the shift in humanity 2,500 years ago or something like that, where 
in many places of the world more or less simultaneously. We had a shift in culture and understanding, developing a written language that enabled us to develop uh, the major religions or philosophies or ideo ideologies that made it possible for humanity really for the first time to go from living in small societies or small tribes guided mostly by instinct to really put together a, a system that would help us to see the world differently but also experience and feel the world differently to make it possible for us to live in large societies in cities with many thousands tens of thousands of inhabitants and even small civilizations so so that would be a four level shift and these shifts have all been in or the deeper shifts have all been in this what some thinkers call the collective imaginary and the great uh, invention during the axial age was really to more systematically form a collective imaginary that intentionally made it possible for us humans to live in a completely different world. And of course, during the Enlightenment, also our collective imaginary shifted. And this concept of the collective imaginary is, is a little bit nebulous concept. And how could we best describe it and where does it come from? Well, it comes from deep sociology. And I think that the deeper the shift we believe that we are in, the deeper we have to look, as just mentioned, back in history to understand what is going on. So, so, we, so we need to understand deep history. But we also need to look deeper into ourselves and to understand deep psychology, which um, uh, is a little bit a different psychological approach from the everyday psychological theory or KBT theory or, or things like that, that really goes down into both our deep individual unconscious, but also into our collective unconscious. Uh, and I know from listening to your podcast that uh, you are familiar with Jungian theory. And mm -hmm. Jung is, is, is one of the psychologists that has really uh, explored these deeper layers of our, our consciousness and are talking about concepts like the shadow and archetypes and things like that. So mm -hmm. understanding what's going on, we need to look into the deep levels of our own consciousness and deep psychology because these shifts do not only involve society of course it involves also shifting us as in individuals but deep psychology and deep history is not enough we need also to look at deep sociology and um, that has not been up for so much discussions in in public media uh, not as much as deep history popularized by Sapiens, uh, Harari's great works, and uh, deep psychology, Jordan B. Peterson and, and Jung. Deep sociology, uh, if I should name, mention some names uh, associated with that, starting perhaps with, a, with the most contemporary sociologist that is using the term collective imaginaries, and that is the French-Canadian 
philosopher Gerard Bouchard, who just a couple of years um, ago came out with uh, the book that is called Social Myths and Collective Imaginaries, where he's really connecting this sort of mythopoetical level that Jung, Jordan Peterson, and others are talking about with these deep levels in society that he calls collective imaginaries. Um, the eminent um, uh, sociologist Charles Taylor, who might be more famous than Gerard Bouchard, he came out with a book 2004 called Modern Social Imaginaries. So social imaginaries is his term for this. But those that really pioneered these, these ways of thinking, that, that were um, two uh, sociologists uh, writing in the 60s called uh, Berger and Luckmann. And they published a book in 67, I believe it was, called um, uh, The Social Construction of uh, Reality, where they really describe this deep sociological process where we as humans construct the deeper unconscious levels of society. Mm. And this was now very abstract, <laughs> and and oh. also okay, so can I can I give some sort of understandable e example of what I mean? <laughs> oh please, I think yeah. we'll take the next hour and a half to begin to put some um, some more flesh yeah. on it. But I'm I'm with yeah. you, and I, I think it's brilliant. So please, yeah. So 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 the main thinking: the deeper the shift in society, the deeper we have to look back in history to understand. The deeper we have to look into our own psychology to understand what's going on that the shift needed in us and the deeper we have to look into the shift in in society and when we are really deep on on the mythopoetical level in society we are down to the collective imaginaries so an example um we as humans in the modern world we need both air to breathe and money to be able to survive in, uh, in this world. Mm -hmm. And for us as individuals, money and oxygen can all, almost seem equally important and tangible and necessary for us to function in, uh, and survive in the modern world. But there, is a, but there is a deep difference between oxygen and money. And the difference is so deep that you could talk about an ontological difference. Mm -hmm. That, that they are in a philosophical sense made up of completely different, um, completely different kinds. They are properties mm. of completely different kinds and have to be understood in different ways. So if we take oxygen, even if all of humanity came together and said, we don't want to be dependent on oxygen any longer. We, we want humanity to be free of dependence on oxygen. We couldn't do anything about that. Mm -hmm. But if we came together, all of humanity, or even perhaps just in a nation state, and said that we would like to change the way that we allocate goods in society, we don't want to use money any longer. We want to use something else. Then money would be gone tomorrow. So there is something very different between these two concepts. And one way to say is that, that Oxygen is a natural phenomenon. Our understanding of oxygen might not be natural, but oxygen itself is, is, is natural. Whereas money is a social construct. 
it's, it's an imaginary. It's something that we humans have thought up, invented in our mind as an imaginary. But it is not just in my individual imaginary. It is in our collective imaginary. We all believe in money. And the fact that we all, including society, believe in money makes it necessary for me as an individual to actually see money as something very tangible. When I'm checking out in my local supermarket, I cannot just tell the cashier that money is a human invention and uh, I don't believe in money. No, yeah. money is sanctioned by society and, and is therefore meeting me as an individual as something, something very real and tangible. And of course, the little sad thing here is that we some, sometimes mix this all up. Mm -hmm. So if we look at oxygen and the natural world, we sometimes believe that the planetary boundaries is something that is up for negotiation. Whereas the market forces is something we just as humanity have to obey. When it is, of course, the opposite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So coming to this realization that a lot of things in our world, I would say the majority of things in our human world, is actually just human inventions that we can see from history were invented sometimes consciously, but many times just by pure um, accidents and, and flukes of, of, of history. And of course, this is not just money and the market, it is nation states, it's marriage, it's presidents, it's all, all of those things that exist because we believe in them collectively. And should we stop believing in those things collectively, then the nation states and the presidents would be gone, would be gone tomorrow. And so would many of our social institutions, rituals, and um, mm -hmm. other things. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, realizing this, then the, that is something that is very much empowering us. Perhaps not empowering us as individuals, but definitely empowering us as a collective. And in these deep shifts in society, we have these deep shifts in the collective imaginary. But in order for us to exercise this collective freedom that this insight gives us, then we need to be able to do collective sense-making in order to enable collective action and collective agency. And as many have pointed out on your, on your um, podcast, not the least John Verweke, we are today so bad at collective sense-making and the collective sense-making is, is breaking down. So then we all become sort of slaves on this collective imaginary and because we, we, are, we can't make sense and we can't talk about this and we can't act on this, then we are losing a lot of human freedom in that way, our collective freedom to shape our collective imaginary. Okay, so that was, uh, that, that was a high level uh, uh, introduction. I, I hope we didn't lose all, all our listeners uh, there. Well, well um, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's brilliant. I'm very grateful for such a context and a framing you've laid down for us. I mean, there are so many ways I'm feeling I'd love to bite into this because the the sense I get the the um, the agency that thinking in this way can afford 
I think is a very um, a powerful and, and beautiful thing. This, this notion, this, this recognition that we're so deeply involved in creating our world is something that can, that can work for us and the world if we can only so manage to perceive, I think, um, more clearly yeah. to, to perceive and interact with more wisdom. And yet, here's to add in something, not a spanner in the works exactly, but one way in which things get so complicated is when we begin to recognize that, mm, okay, some of these aspects of the collective imaginary take money, for example. Um, while there's a lineage of our sort of behavioral processes that have created this phenomenon, something like a habit that we're all participating in, mm-hmm. if we were in fact all to come together, it'd be very hard, in fact, to decide not to use it anymore. And what would be underneath that? And how could we reorient? And there, the collective imaginary, of course, comes right back in because we might seek to, um, seek to uh, shift something, but actually the very lenses which we then might um, uh, filter and interpret the next choices we might want to make are in fact as well conditioned as you've said, there's, it's uh, the collective imaginary is something like the um, ocean is to the fish. How can yeah. we then come into a right kind of relationship with feeling the good flow between, you know, humans, machines, and nature? And, and, and I think you make a very important point that that, that the, the collective imaginary is to us like water is to the fish. We do not have the uh, instincts or, or the genes to uh, automatically see the collective imaginary. I mean, the, coll- the collective imaginary is completely uh, tra- transparent to our, our senses. So we, so we need really to do that as an intellectual exercise. But also in everyday world and in everyday society, we, we are not trained to, to see it. Because for, for us as individuals, it doesn't really have that much value to, to realize that, that uh, money and, and marriage and uh, uh, nation states and borders that they are social constructs because as individuals we just have to uh, uh, yeah take these as a as a fact of of life but it's really when we're talking about political philosophy and the collective decision processes and i think that it is on that level that more and more people start to understand that on the highest level of our political processes then things are breaking down. And of course, the vi- environmental uh, collapse is, uh, is one of those um, areas where people are waking up saying that, okay, so we all want to do something, or most of us want to do something, but why isn't anything happening anyhow? So how do we translate this individual will of many people into some sort of collective action and, and that we are as good as we have trained ourselves to be and realized during the last 100 years or 200 years since the Enlightenment, our own individual freedom. Equally bad are we today to exercise collective freedom. And, and I would perhaps even argue that we are less capable today to exercise collective freedom than, than we were perhaps 50 or, or even 100 years ago. Definitely mm-hmm. 50 years um, ago. Why is that, do you say? Well, I, t- I touch a bit upon that in, in my first book that you mentioned, The Market Myth. And, and I think that is a, a, a little bit that um, 
and I'm, as you know, I'm a former investment uh, banker myself. I, 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 I built my uh, small fortune on uh, uh, building a banking business in Scandinavia and, and in Switzerland. So I've been working inside uh, the market and been making money uh, successfully within the market. And I should also say that it was from realizing that the market and being an entrepreneur in, in inside the market that it was more useful for me to look at the market as a sociological phenomenon than to uh, apply the standard economic uh, thinking the, mm. the neoclassical economic paradigm but this neoclassical economic paradigm and also the neoliberal paradigm that is putting so much belief in the market that the market has really become a myth. It, it has been the, the sort of the, the overarching meta-narrative that keeps the world uh, together today. And in, in that way, just like the foundational myths of other societies, it's become a little bit of a sacred, sacred thing. Hmm. And of course, the market is super, a super powerful tool and can help us uh, in, in, and has helped humanity to reach this uh, level where, where we are today and it's super effective when it comes to producing material things and refrigerators and cars and, and, and all of those things. But we have put during the last 50 years, especially the last 30 years, a, a little bit too much belief in the ability for the market to solve all and every uh, human uh, uh, problem. And in that way, we have backed off from a political and collective decision making in those areas where uh, the, the market cannot function. And of course, any uh, economist or even any student of economy at university knows from the first course, uh, Macroeconomy 101, that there are categories of goods that even in the neoclassical um, uh, economic theory, uh, the market cannot provide. And collective goods like um, military defense, for example, that is a standard example of a collective good that the market can, cannot provide, but has to be a political decision because you cannot decide to want to, mm -hmm. to buy military protection for $2,000. And I would say I want military protection for $7,000. No, if we have military protection, everyone is benefiting from it. So we all need to collectively chip in to, to, to finance it. So that's the standard example. But you could say other things like, for example, uh, even our societal culture or our collective imaginary is such a collective good that not even neoclassical um, economic theory pretends that the market could deliver on. Uh, another group of goods are the, um, uh, what economists uh, call the merit goods, which are goods that you do not, that you have no chance to value or appreciate the value of until you have actually consumed it. So there also the market cannot, cannot function. And, and the typical example of that is personal development. So somebody could, could tell you that, yeah, you should really spend the time and the money necessary to, to take the next step in your personal development. And you might say, well, what is this? 
and that can possibly not be worth this time and money you are talking about. So um, I don't want that. And, yeah. and no advertisement campaign could sort of convey the, the true benefits. They could entice you to do it, but they couldn't yeah. convey the, the true benefits of it until you've gone through it. And then you could say, wow, I mean, this was worth it many times over. Yeah. But you can't really explain it to your friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in those cases, the, um, the market is not working. So come back to your question. So why are we bad at collective sense-making and collective agency? One reason is that we have delegated too much to, to the market because we, we, have so, we are so bad at, at collectively making sense of things. So then it's better to say, well, let's just rely on, on, on the market instead of trying to figure uh, things out. So, so, so that is one reason. But then the other reason is that in this postmodern philosophical society that we live in right now, there is no real philosophical foundation to rank values, mm. to, de to decide collectively on, for example, to take a crude example, what, what should we produce in society? Sh should mm -hmm. we produce theater or pornography? Mm -hmm. And we can't really say, because I mean, who am I to say what you should consume and what's right and wrong? And we have this mm -hmm. value relativism. So then it's much more easy to just say, well, let the market sort that out. We let mm -hmm. the market decide. And then we don't need to be discussing whether we can have value hierarchies or, or, or not. And if those hierarchies could be universal or if they are always just the power structures that some people are trying to impose on, on, on others. So even though I appreciate very much postmodern philosophy and insights, and of course, a deep insight of postmodern philosophy is the existence of these collective imaginaries and how they have power over us and how they also have our power structures in, in themselves. So that's very important uh, postmodern uh, insights. But then if you take the postmodern philosophy a few steps too far, then you end up in a value relativism. And that has had the effect that even though most postmodern philosophers are very critical towards the market, this philosophy has still enabled the market to take a very dominant position in our world. Mm -hmm. And I would even argue that as some philosophers say that each collective imaginary that we have always needs a fundamental authority to anchor this relatively random collective imaginary in. And during a huge span of human history, usually our collective imaginaries were, were anchored in God religion god god had the right answer or the right answer was in the holy book so that sort of put an anchor to to this fairly random collective imaginary then through the enlightenment in in the collective imaginary of of reason and science their science became the anchoring element so we could find the truth through science and if we hadn't found the truth yet, science and a combination of science and reason would help us find the truth. Of course, this is something that the postmodern worldview is deconstructing, correctly so. 
saying that, that every collective imaginary and every fundamental authority is just a human construct. So God and science are just human constructs and therefore not absolute anchoring points. And claiming correctly that in today's world there is no absolute anchor point. That is correct. But then we still need an anchoring point. That is why we invented God in the first place. So then today, I claim, the market is uh, fulfilling that function, mm -hmm. even though that was not the intention of the postmodern philosophers. That is still the actual effect. So we have a rel very relativistic postmodern worldview, but still our social imaginary today, our social world is very much anchored in, uh, in the market. And I think that what needs to happen now in this shift that we are going through, we, we need to change that. And we need to, in order to do that, we, we need to become aware of the importance of our collective imaginary and not just be subject to a randomly constructed collective imaginary or a collective imaginary that has been constructed intentionally by some sort of... Um, uh, special interest. Mm -hmm. It has to be a collective imaginary that's, that serves humanity as a whole and also the planet uh, uh, and all of that. And that needs to be anchored in some sort of new meta-narrative. Mm -hmm. But the postmodern philosophers are right in claiming that every meta-narrative is man-made. That is true. So therefore, we need to co-create and co-construct the new meta-narrative. And holding that, knowing that it's not given by God or given by nature, but as a co-constructed narrative or narratives, because I'm mm -hmm. come back to that also later. I don't think that we are moving into, or we shouldn't be moving into just one uh, monoculture for, for the whole globe. The, the future will contain many different narratives. But in order for those narratives and those cultures to actually be able to uh, live together and, and enrich each others by giving us many perspectives of the world, we still need some sort of holding container, the story about this good multicultural society that we can agree upon. Otherwise, we would never be able to exercise our collective imaginary freedom and we would never be able to, to solve some of the, these crises we have in today's meta-crisis, like uh, the environmental problems. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for that. Okay, let me see. Let me see if I can say some um, things that may in fact be helpful. Maybe we can build a little bit from them together. <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Okay. Help, help, help us all understand this now and why. <laughs> oh no, that's not my job here. <laughs> I'm taking us. It's, I'm taking us into a nosedive. All right. Okay. Okay. Here it is. So, part of the issue we face is that, at least psychologically speaking, we undergo a kind of transformative process. Well, that's that's that can be chaotic, almost by definition, it can be very uncertain, and we're not sure what's going to emerge on the other side. It's one of the reasons why we might not like to do it. So this yeah. idea, this uh, this this postmodern critique, this recognition that 
much of our knowledge building um, is in fact built on a kind of a set of perspectives that can be critiqued and cannot in fact serve as these absolute grounding points around yeah. which everything can orient but it's like okay it's like you challenge that pick away at that it's like well, okay there we go now we're getting into some of the stuff that's part of the meaning crisis this famous position of the death of god that nietzsche that nietzsche speaks to a kind of breakdown in coherence we might say an yeah. anchoring yeah. pillar of yeah. coherence yeah. but yeah. What, what we want yeah. to recognize is that um we're deeply involved in the creation of the fabric, which in fact is the coherence making structure between us. Mm. And then the question is, how can not we... Ju not just coherence making, but, but, but also um, structuring and making our society function efficiently. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think we're, we, should, we should also mm -hmm. say that th this, why do we need this anchoring point? Well, it, well, it is a huge gift to humanity by evolution our ability to construct the symbolic world and the, the symbolic language. And this was given to us by, by evolution already back in, in Stone Age when we started to, to use language to tell stories and we gathered around the, the fire mm -hmm. and we were talking stories and trying to make sense. And the fact that we could construct these different symbolic worlds had huge survival value for humans because that made it possible to us to occupy many different niches in mm -hmm. in nature and be able to to live anywhere from alaska up to um, to greenland so mm -hmm. this has had a huge survival value that we have this freedom to construct our symbolic world our our collective imaginary but the problem is exactly the one you put in the, your finger on for this to work in, in a human society, we need to live in the same, or basically the same, collective imaginary. Because otherwise we can't communicate and we can't make sense and we can't cohere. Yes. So, so, that, so that, is, that is why we then invented religion and other tools to really uh, make it possible for us to do collective sense-making and to cohere around these things. But when we forget about these things, when we throw out religion and when we correctly point out that the scientific perspective of looking at the world is just one perspective among many, a very important perspective and not a random perspective, um, but it, it is one perspective among many, then we are starting to lose coherence. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. we, we, we have not yet rediscovered the importance of uh, the, the collective imaginary. Because we mm -hmm. can't really see the evolutionary value of religions of, and of those narratives. And of mm -hmm. course, we are very careful not wanting to replace a religious narrative with an ideological narrative, like communism or, or fascism or, or something. We want, to, we want to keep the freedom and the multiple perspectives of, of our liberal, dem democratic, multicultural world. But we still need to cohere in some questions and, and yeah. that is the dile dilemma that we are in right now yeah I, I feel this tension point is something that uh well of course it's critical and deeply it's something that's a big part of your work it's something that is certainly a point of real 
real interest and I'm committed to this tension in an important sense with this project and with, with all the relationships I'm forming, I find, because it turns out, at least it seems to me that the dynamics of relationship itself, right? How we show up yeah. within self, but then also yeah. with each other, we have this capacity to tune in together. We have this capacity to share in perception, to share yeah. in expression, to transform our shared capacity for seeing the world. And it's something like transformation through a dialogical process together, whether in ceremony, whether just in friendship, right? That we, I think it's from that kind of source that we can begin to feel fundamentally what a mode or a way of being in coherence with each other is, even mm. if we don't in fact know the fixed and final answer of things, which isn't what we're looking for, no. but we can find a way in. It's like just to go meta on this conversation, those of um, you who are still listening, the first 25 minutes for me, this conversation has been a lot, has been listening, right? And it's been a beautiful listening. And what you've presenced has enabled us with so many concepts and a whole context to play with, right? And, and see through. And now it comes to this point where, okay, how do I find myself in this? And it's not about finding myself as an isolated entity, but it's how can I add to this so that mm, we yeah. all of a sudden can begin to share in something together? Knowing that Absolutely. we're not going to solve everything, but we can. No, no, no. no. And, and, and as you pointed out, this process is emergent. So we can't plan this and, and, and we can't figure out the, the, the end result, but we can still facilitate and, and, and uh, be active participants in this process. But then we come back to what, where you were going before and I deviated a little bit when you wanted to introduce the, the, the psychological perspective in this. Because when we move into these shifts, the deeper these shifts are, the more turbulent our whole world is becoming. Mm -hmm. and, and to not completely freak out as an individual in this shift, and perhaps even as an individual, be able to actively contribute and become a co-creator in this shift, that demands a lot of psychological capabilities from our side and i know that 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 uh, you have spoken on your podcast uh, about uh, adult developmental uh, theory and the importance of 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 doing inner work and uh, constantly knowing that we are on this lifelong journey of inner maturation so if we use the language of uh, professor robert keegan uh, if if you are in a socialized mind, if your consciousness and your, your sense-making system is in what he calls a socialized mind, then you are very much dependent on um, an outside source for, for both your worldview, your, your values, and for an anchoring point. Mm -hmm. and, and you cannot really see the culture that, that you are... Um, living within and you can't take your own values in that culture as an object for reflection whereas when you come a little bit longer on your lifelong maturation and you perhaps start perceiving and making meaning from a perspective 
of a self-authoring mind, then you can start to reflect on your own values. You can start to reflect on, on, on your culture. And then you can a little bit distance yourself from your culture and, and, and to look at your culture from the outside and your values from the outside. And that is a prerequisite for you to at all to be able to be an active participant in this process without completely freaking out. Mm -hmm. And it is this freaking out that we see in many places in the world today, where people are, look, uh, are so afraid of going into this, this shift and looking mm -hmm. for security. Mm. And in many cases, they are looking for security in the form of an authoritarian uh, leader mm. or from a dogmatic religion or just something to hold on to in this uh, chaos that they are uh, so afraid of, of step, stepping mm. into. But, but, but the more grounded you are in yourself and the more connected you are with your own internal values and your own internal compass, the, the more you could could dare letting go and stepping into the chaos and to become an active co-creator, a conscious co-creator of what wants to emerge. Mm, that's beautifully said. Yeah, I, would, I, I really want to get into that, but it's come to me. I'd like to share a story with you. Do you mind? No, I'm yeah, interested. Okay. It flagged up when you um, mentioned the word turbulence, you know, and um, I my body felt all of a sudden the turbulence of um, being in a plane when it's turbulent. And, yeah. you know, this is, uh, this is not a pleasant thing. I've done quite a bit of flying. I, I'm sure you've done a lot of flying, right? And, you know, you can get used to it a little bit, but I've always been a bit of a nervous flyer, let's say. And there was this one time I'd, um, I was traveling in America after I finished a degree there. And I had just spent um, a night or a few nights in Vegas. And I had stayed out most of the night and I had to catch a plane, I think at like 3 a.m. to Chicago. And so, you know, I was quite switched on, let's say. I got on this plane and we took off and it was the, the worst turbulence I've ever experienced. Like so bad that um, it got to a point where people were screaming throughout the plane, you know, yeah. and... Um, there was this sense of, okay, all right, this maybe, maybe this is it. You know, I've never heard a plane so, so loud. And then it got quite quiet. And I've, it's, I've rarely told this story. And it's funny because I can't remember the face of the, of the man who was sitting next to me, but I remember we were holding hands and um, all of a sudden um, people started to talk to each other. The, yeah. it, it went from shrieks to all of a sudden a whole plane in conversation. And I yeah. was holding hands with this, with this man. I was trying to comfort him in some sense. And it stayed terrible, um, the turbulence, right up until we landed. But we landed. And there's just something about, and it, you know, it's an ephemeral thing. I, I'm not in touch with anyone. And it's a, it's a while ago now. But there's something about a group of people finding each other to converse with you know a kind of comforting of each other and i wasn't giving up right and um i you know this this metaphor isn't gonna take us exactly where we need to go because there's a sense in which we were just looking for security and we weren't really creating our way out of it 
but there's something beautiful we can do when it comes to facing turbulence, when it comes to facing chaos. And that's, we can, in fact, hold hands and be together. And it's, yeah. there's really no other way to do it. It's, it's, it's uh, no other a certain capacity way. to breathe. Yeah, yeah. yeah no exactly. other constructive, constructive way yes. to, to do it. There are many... Uh, destructive yeah yeah, yeah you're right you're right going, <laughs> trying to fight external enemies and yeah, yeah. gather around and yeah. that well that's that's that channel right. or project that fear in, in various uh, directions and that that is also of course a human instinct that yeah if we feel this fear try to find a scapegoat try to find a them that we could uh, scapegoat yeah. and project our fears towards yeah but it's exciting now, you know, yeah. there, there is genuine yeah. hope because what, what I feel a lot is I, and I've been seeking to engage in transformative conversations for a long time. And I'm feeling that there is um, a really a burgeoning interest and there's a lot of available energy, wonderful projects, you know, including the Stoa mm. Rebel Wisdom starting communities, but many Discord communities. There's a Voicecraft Collective, which is a group of us who get together to have conversations and experimenting with ways we can effectively um, be generative together. Um, and it, yeah. it, this ties into, I think, some of the inner developmental um, stuff, a, a direction we might take, but it seems like um, worthwhile to just nod to the fact that I really, in the face of so much turbulence, it's a bit like a roller coaster, you know? I mean, I certainly yeah. feel hope sometimes begin to fade, but I also feel a resounding, a resounding um, note of it. Um, and so there's, along with all of these podcasts, you know, there's genuine invitations to people. And I think that's mm. something important that we both, um, that we both appreciate is the importance of extending invitations to actively participate in this moment in a way that's um, valuable for you as an individual, but fundamentally nested and interconnected with what is valuable and worthwhile to be a part of for the whole as well. Absolutely. We need, we need um, many of us to, to step up. And, and then I'm not talking about hundreds of people. I'm not talking about thousands of people. I'm talking about millions of people that, that needs to step up uh, at this point and to help to co-create through this uh, turbulence, mm -hmm. co-create through this turbulence that, that uh, you metaphorically were was, was speaking about before. And, th and that might be a good point to, to go back to uh, the book uh, you mentioned, Lena's and my book, The Nordic Secret, because th that, that book really tells the story about how we in the Nordic countries, when we were in this last uh, or latest very important societal shift in our countries, when we went from being the poorest, non-democratic, uh, religious, agrarian societies at the end of the 1800s, to just a few generations later, being the richest, the happiest, most stable um, industrial democracies in, in the world. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a period of turbulence. And in many places in, 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 in the world, certainly in, in continental Europe, this transition from more or less ag agrarian 
uh, authoritarian societies into uh, democracy, that, that was very turbulent and it was a lot of violent, violence and there was a lot of war. Uh, whereas in, in Scandinavia, we managed this very peacefully. And um, I, I've been in, into very interested in this connection between our personal inner development and societal change ever since I left banking more than 10 years ago and set up my own foundation in Sweden called the Oak Island Foundation, Ekvaret. Um, but it wasn't until uh, five years ago that I discovered, uh, together with Lena, that uh, I was really trying to reinvent the, the wheel. That this understanding of the connection between our personal inner development and societal change, that that was actually a perspective that most, if not all, intellectuals and politicians uh, in Scandinavia 150 years ago um, had on the world. And this understanding of the importance of personal development uh, actually turned into national policy in, uh, in both Denmark and in Norway and in Sweden. Because we had intellectuals and politicians who saw this turbulence coming, that they, they knew that industrialization and urbanization and democracy was coming and they were really truly committed to build democracy. But also they knew, not the least from the German philosophers Goethe and Schiller and Herder von Humboldt, also Danish philosopher Kierkegaard, that in terms of rapid social change and turbulence, we want to have a hand to hold on to, as you said. Mm -hmm. We want yeah. to, we as humans, it's so easy for us humans to want to hold on to an external authority, to a dogmatic religion or to an authoritarian leader. Uh, but these politicians and intellectuals, they didn't want to be authoritarian leaders. They were firmly committed to, to build strong democracies. And they knew that the only way to build strong democracies are to build them from, from bottom up. Mm. Uh, and in order to do that, they wanted to create uh, the possibility for, for many citizens to be able to uh, do the work of inner development and be able to connect to their inner compass to become self-authoring or starting the process of self-authoring that we, that we just mentioned. And do you know how they did that? Well, I've heard you discuss it a few times, but I'm, oh, okay. I'm, interested, so... I'm interested for you to sort of take us through it again. Yeah, so, so I jokingly sometimes called what they did was that they created a lot of retreat centers mm -hmm. and that is actually what they did i mean they were not called retreat centers back then but they were centers often out in nature committed to programs of learning but also inner development and discovering and trying to connect with your your true authentic values and becoming self-authoring and by the turn of the last century year 1900 there were actually a hundred centers like this just in Denmark, 75 in Norway and 150 in Sweden, where young adults, usually in their, in their 20s, could later on with full state sub subsidy spend up to six months in retreat in order to uh, connect with themselves and each other and talk about society, talk about technology, talk about this shift that they were in. 
and in that way become conscious co-creators of the, the new society. And when this program was at it, its height, actually 10% of each young generation participated in programs like this. And of course that created a, a critical mass or a tipping point in the complex system, we would say today using, using that language. And what was especially beautiful in this case, I think, was that the participants in these uh, programs, they came from all different layers of society. And actually, a majority of the participants were from farming or working class background. So you had these conscious co-creators, not just in a small elite somewhere in society, but, but fairly well distributed all over. And, and that managed to create this tipping point. Now, now, of course, we are starting to lose this in Scandinavia. And we discussed that in our book as, as well, because after the Second World War, we, we started to change worldview again. And we forgot about the importance of our inner world and the possibility of the lifelong development that we had learned from the German Bildung philosophers I just uh, mentioned. And we instead turned to the Anglo-Saxon world. We turned to Oxford and Cambridge and to the US. And, and there it was still the old worldview of Locke and Descartes with them, our mind as a rational machine and not at all the focus on lifelong inner development and the importance of that both for individuals but also for society. Mm. So that's the story. And, and I don't think that this is a blueprint for how we should do it today, but certainly it's a case study showing that what we are talking about on, on pods like this, about the importance of inner development in these shifts, that that is not just some new interesting idea. It has actually been tried, large scale, full scale, in three countries, a little bit different implementation in each country, and it actually worked in all of those countries. Mm. Today, mm. we might make use of technology to bring down the costs, for, for this, and one initiative that I'm involved with is the 29K uh, initiative, which is a digital platform for personal growth, a nonprofit, open source, co-created uh, platform that I take the, the liberty to, to point our listeners to, 29k.org. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that develops. I've checked it out, and I'll include some links. Let me see if I can tie a couple things together here. Um, I want to see if I can bring in this, um, this need we have to do something about the absence of a meta-narrative we can all participate in, um, but perhaps to play with, maybe play with some different language there, because it's unclear to me whether we can frame things in terms of meta-narrative. I think unless we want to say something like the meta-narrative is that which continually fuels itself through a reciprocal process of extending invitations for people to participate and develop the narrative or create their own narratives in some fundamental sense. But I think the link, in fact, like the imminent link, or maybe like the, where I at least feel I can, where my hope, let's say grounds, where my hope is grounded is again, back to relationship. 
And it's something like that. Hmm. Almost there. Hmm. It's, it's part of this issue we have is trust, you know, is, mm-hmm. is trust in the kind of relationality that is the very essence of the commons, right? Mm-hmm. We've spoken about the market and we can talk about the state. And in fact, in a conversation I heard John Bavaki have with Jordan Hall and Greg Henriquez, which I really recommend um, people check out. Um, I can include a link to that as well. Uh, Jordan sort of offered a formal articulation of the relationship between the commons, the market and the state and was sort of speaking about how to reinvigorate the commons, which has in fact broken down. We might look at it as a kind of sense of um, fellowship or kinship, fundamentally a kind of communal friendship, right? mediated by an an effective and vital let's say collective imaginary to use some of Mm. the language we've been speaking about so far that's a kind of and of and of course the collective imaginary it's is itself such a common yes it's itself such such a a common and if we don't take care of 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 it as a common then then we will uh, perhaps have the tragedy of the common Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. So, so they are effectively, they're, they're playing the same role here. We can sort of substitute one, one for the other. So how then fundamentally, like this is, this is one of the problems we have to address on an ongoing basis is how can we open interactions? How can we extend invitations? How can we participate with each other when the turbulence of the difference in shared sense of collective imaginary is present and my proposition would be something like or we mentioned inner development we mentioned the self-authoring and what have you but this metaphor of the holding hands you know there's something in there 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 is a felt sense it's almost like on the breath it's it's just a, a fluency of breathing in and out being able to just slow down metaphorically for me it's like connecting with the person's eyes you know just seeing that little bit deeper and all of a sudden the complexity of our potential right that's in some sense transcendent to whatever the collective imaginary is of the time it's like Mm. a source to to draw from and it's Mm. it's this it's such a beautiful thing that just with almost with the, the right intention, with the, with the right feeling, with the right extending of the hand, you know, that just it's a little moment and then all of a sudden we can begin to just get to know each other a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, uh, some words that comes to my mind here are the words of my, my friend, the African philosopher, Bayo Akumulafe. Mm-hmm. He, he, he sometimes says, um, my ancestors tell me we are in an emergency. We have to slow down. Mm. And that is so counterintuitive to our Western mind. But I think that is what, what you are talking about here, that in mm. this turbulence, we, we, we might just want to rush in and do things and try to make meaning and solve things. But the way we might need to do, at least first, is to slow down mm. and, and, and to reach deep into... Uh, ourselves mm. and and to see what ways we can contribute and how we in the best way can be meaningful participants in this process because i think you're putting the finger on the right thing here that we have to look at this as a process 
Mm -hmm. It's not one meta-narrative we want to reach. It's not one end state of society we want to need. Mm -hmm. Technological change is now so, so fast that society and everything is developing so quickly that we cannot say what the world will be like in 20 years, perhaps not even 10 years. But when we cannot be certain about the good outcome of the process, then we can't not just give up and say, okay, then let's just see what happens. No, then our focus needs to shift from the outcome to the process. And instead of asking ourselves, what is the good outcome? To ask ourselves, just like you did, what is the good process? How can we talk about a good process? And how can we all become and enable ourselves and empower ourselves to become active and conscious agents in that process, that mm. never-ending process. Yes, yeah, beautifully said. So I just encourage everyone, you know, um, to check out the links here in this conversation to all the projects Thomas is involved with. And here too, these are genuine invitations to involve yourself in just this kind of process. Um, there's a vision, a collaborative vision developing that I at least see in this metacultural space that looks something like a networked group of communities. There's movement between and there's, there's elders and wisdom keepers and people who connect at a level of feeling and people who connect at a level of thinking and, and, in, and a recognition of the importance of an integration between these functions. And there are conversations to be part of. I talk sometimes about integrating the, the thinking and the doing and, mm. and, and the being or the becoming part. So, uh, yeah. Mm. So we can't just be in our heads, but we need theory and we need, yep. un, we need understanding. And then we, we need entrepreneurship. We need people who are actually doing things in this uh, field, experimenting in this field, building bridges into this fog, foggy future yeah. that we don't know where it is, but we still need to do things, experiment. And yeah. then what I tend to forget the most, being mostly in the thinking and doing side, we, we, we need the being and we need mm -hmm. the becoming. And, and we need to uh, slow down and to, to reach deep into our being and becoming to see how we can best contribute in this process. Well, it's beautiful, Thomas. Um, yeah. You know, I think we're nearing the end of our time here, but I am curious to ask you just a final question uh, and you can answer shortly if you like, but, and that is, I'm interested in what's next for you. You know, is it, um, in terms of if you would, uh, write another book, but not so much about the book, but in what, what's, what's on the cusp for you? What are the ideas, the activities, what do you feel is drawing you into the future at the moment? I just came back from a very interesting experiment at, um, my foundation's island outside Stockholm, the, the Oak Island, Ekvaret, where we had uh, gathered a, a few um, people who, uh, from the crowd that we gathered at the Emerge gathering in Kiev last mm. year, and we were experimenting there a little bit with collective sense-making. Mm. So we gathered a small group of uh, European facilitators, people with... Uh, uh, decades of experience of facilitating group processes and, and to see whether, whether we could tap deeper into this being or deeper into this becoming 
in order to be able to harvest the collective intelligence in this group and to see how such a facilitation is, is, is possible. And we did some interesting uh, experimentation in this direction at the Emerge Gathering in Kiev last year, and we came even, even further here uh, during this, in this small group at the Ekferret. So I'm very interested to see, uh, can we as humanity learn or relearn to connect together in a deeper personal connection in a group of people and then try to understand and communicate and together make sense from that greater whole that emerges uh, between us. Mm. And mm -hmm. this is still just very, very uh, early stages. But I think it's something in that direction we, we, we need to go. We, we, we need in this transition to find not just new perspectives, not just develop ourselves and mature as individuals, but we also need to find new ways of making sense. And there, of course, John Derveke is talking about uh, various psychotechnologies and um, those psychotechnologies need to be collective in a collective sense-making. So experimenting yeah. in this field right now gives me, gives me a lot of energy. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Well, um, look, I mean, believe me, I could take this conversation in about five hours worth of different direction, <laughs> but we will have to leave that, I think, for, for another occasion. It's been really beautiful to get to know you a little bit and have this conversation. And um, man, looking forward to the co-creation, the ongoing co-creation of this future. Uh, and also, whew, yeah, there is turbulence, but um, I appreciate the work you're doing. So thank you for joining me. Thank you, Tim, and thank you for doing this uh, uh, podcast and connecting a lot of people with uh, interesting ideas in, in these turbulent times. Thank you. <laughs>